Okay, uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Uh, welcome to Free Association. Uh, this one is going to be challenging for a lot of people, challenging for me, but uh, worth listening to. This is an, an interview by Mike Adams of Dr. Andrew, Andrew Kaufman and Dr. Tom Cowan. And they'll, uh, they'll take us through uh, what viruses are and aren't and whether viruses have been proven to cause disease and whether viruses have been isolated over the last 60 or 70 years. Uh, they've got answers for a lot of things. Again, it's challenging. It's going to mean that you rip up a lot of the theory about disease that you've been holding on to since you were a child, since you were told that viruses cause disease. But it's worth listening to. It might it might not change your mind about anything, but it might send you on a on a research path that, that leads somewhere interesting. Um, I'm certainly interested in where it's leading me. So this is this is the interview anyway, it's about an hour. And I'll play part of it. And we'll see how we go. In these genetic vaccine products, you know, the we're not sure if the spike protein is actually made because, you know, it's not in the vaccine, right? The vaccine has the genetic code for the for this protein. But because they wanted to avoid doing any studies related to shedding, which are required for gene therapies, they had this thing classified as a vaccine so they could bypass that. So they've never actually studied, is the spike protein actually made in someone who gets these injections? Welcome to Brighteon Conversations. I'm Mike Adams, the founder of Brighteon.com and now the new Brighteon.tv broadcast platform. And today... I got to tell you, I am super thrilled to have these two guests on because these two brilliant men have uh, changed my thinking about so many things. And, and right up front, I'll tell you who they are. And I got to offer them both an apology because I thought they were wrong for quite a while. Now I found out they're right, and it's going to blow your mind as you discover that for yourself. It's Dr. Thomas Cowan and Dr. Andrew Kaufman. And as I, as, as I said, they're going to join me here in just a second. I thought they were wrong because they were saying, you know, you've heard this, that the COVID-19 virus has never been isolated from a symptomatic person, you know, uh, isolated, shown then to infect another person and reproduce the symptoms of the original diagnosis of the original source. And when I first heard that, you know, as a lab scientist myself, I thought, surely they must be wrong. Surely there must be certified reference materials of uh, this, like a, like a dried powder of SARS-CoV-2 virus that I can order as a lab owner, that I can order and get a certified reference material and I can conduct studies on it. So I tried to order certified reference materials and this is when the awakening began for me and I came to discover that so much of the field of virology is a mishmash of uh, crazy woo goo and they're selling basically snot stew samples to people and calling them isolates and I had this huge awakening, so I had to get these two guys on to explain what's going on here and why COVID hasn't been, quote, isolated and what that actually 
means. So, Dr. Thomas Cowan and Dr. Andrew Kaufman, uh, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. It's great to have both of you on. I've been watching so many of your videos over the last few weeks and getting an incredible education. But let's let's start at the beginning here. And if I could pose this question, Dr. Kaufman. Oh, and by the way, we'll give out your websites here on screen for people to check out your work. Uh, it's andrewkaufmanmd.com and drtomcowan.com. But Dr. Kaufman, could you explain to people, just for starters, what what do you mean when you say that we don't have an isolated SARS-CoV-2, a novel coronavirus that has been isolated and proven to cause uh, this so-called disease. What does that mean? Well, essentially, uh, Mike, we have a situation here. If we're going to you know, demonstrate that we've discovered a new organism, right, like they would say that a virus would be, then we have to show that we can find that alleged organism in nature and, you know, so that we can study it, we take a specimen of it and look at it in the laboratory, you know, like you do on a, on a daily basis. And then we can dissect it and see what it's made of and take out the genetic material and sequence that if there is any. And I just assume that that would be how they discover viruses. But what has happened is that uh, since the 1950s, they have this uh, procedure that they call isolation but it's actually a complete inversion of the meaning of that word. And what they do is they, they have the possible or the putative source of a, an alleged virus or a possible virus in nature that they might have a theory as causing a disease, but they can't actually find it. So what they do is they take the disease tissue from uh, whatever organism and they mix it in a foreign cell culture, often using the cells of monkeys, and but they do some further things to make this cell culture not uh, grow well. They're not nice to it. They they add poisonous uh, chemicals and they remove critical nutrients and and create what I call a starvation diet. And then when they show there's damage to those cells in the culture, they say that that's evidence of a virus. And then they show electron microscope pictures of particles. But as we've seen, um, even the scientists in that field knew about this problem for a long time, that these particles they see are just what happens when cells break down in the process of dying. And they can't be distinguished from each other uh, in any way, um, you know, based on appearance or they've never because they've never been actually shown to exist separately in nature. And they've never been, you know, purified in any form that could be used for further study, like as a reference material that you mentioned. And, you know, they do have uh, what they might call reference material available. But what it is, is that they just take the fluid from the cell culture um, and filter it and put it in a vial. And interestingly, and I think this is actually the purpose of why they use this experiment, that's the same exact procedure to manufacture a vaccine because that same very same um, fluid from that cell culture is essentially the vaccine material uh, minus the adjuvants. But importantly, what's in that vial is not purified, is not limited to just whatever genetic sequence strain that they claim is in there. You know, when I, when I buy a standard for my lab of, let's say, glyphosate herbicide, it's only glyphosate in water, right? 
And yes. it's just glyphosate molecules in water. There's nothing else in it. You know, very, very high purity. Um, and I, it even gives me a concentration. You know, it tells me how many micrograms per milliliter of glyphosate is in there so I can, I can do serial dilutions and I can make standards and I can teach the instrument what it's looking at. What I've seen with these uh, virology samples is not only are there no concentrations listed, no masses given of what's in there, but then the disclaimers say, oh, and it probably most of the genetic material in the vial is uh, human cells and bovine cells. So I'm thinking, well, how is this an isolate? <laughs> It is really laughable when you look at it in scientific terms, because as you know, you can take that glyphosate standard and run an HPLC on it and see a pristine, you know, symmetric peak. Yes. Uh, whereas if you took this uh, sample that we're talking about from a cell culture and looked at it under the microscope, you would see a mixture of particles. And if you ran it on a gel electrophoresis, you'd see a mixture of proteins uh, and you'd see a mixture of uh of genetic molecules, right? Uh, DNA and RNA. So it would not be uh, one thing. It's a mixture of things. And that, of course, defies the uh, meaning of the word isolation or isolate. Right. And and just to mention uh, electrophoresis, just to explain this to the readers. So that separates these particle masses by their mass to charge ratios, basically, right? So that spreads out on a gel, physically spreads out particles based on essentially based on their mass. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's a way to demonstrate, you know, what's in a sample in terms of a certain type of biomolecule like proteins um, or RNA or DNA can all uh, be separated so that if you have, for example, you know, different genes represented, they would they would be separated and show up as separate pieces of, of RNA material. Or if you had a mixture of proteins, the same thing. So um, thank you for that explanation. I love, you're, you're very clear about how you're explaining things. And I want to ask you about Koch's postulates here next. But uh, next question is to Dr. Cowan. So what really shocked me about all of this is that once we understand that they don't have an isolated virus for COVID, it also turns out they can't prove that they have isolated viruses that are proven to cause polio or measles or other things. Can you give us uh, your thoughts on the field of virology and this entire postulate that these viruses are causing these conditions alone. Yeah, Mike, I also just want to point out that your example of glyphosate is appropriate because glyphosate is smaller than a virus. It is. So it isn't a technical problem to have pure glyphosate or pure something smaller than a virus. It's common laboratory stuff. So that's not the problem. Uh, the way I would answer your question is, you know, this question I keep asking people, how do you know there's a virus and it causes disease? And most people in response to that, including unfortunately a lot of medical doctors say, well, a lot of people in certain place got sick, so it must be a virus. Or that a lot of people got sick and then it spread to the next place and that means it's a virus. Or my Aunt Bessie went to church and she got sick and that means it's a virus. And the reality is uh, those are epidemiological observations, none of which prove any causation. That's not the role. And besides, if you think because a lot of people get sick in the same place, that proves it's a virus, you must think Hiroshima was a virus. If it <laughs> right. spreads, 
then you must think Chernobyl was a virus. And the reality is for hundreds of years, they thought, you know, one sailor got sick after another, their teeth fell out, they went into heart failure and died. That must be a contagion. Turns out it was scurvy and somebody ate a lime and the whole thing went away. Exactly. We have a long history of being wrong about this. The, The next thing is, and here I'm going to say something that I think will hopefully shock your listeners who haven't heard this, but it, because it shocked me. But if you say, okay, the next step is you take a sick person with measles, AIDS, chicken pox, COVID, whatever that is, any so-called viral disease, and you ask the question, is, is it possible to find a uniform morphologically identical particle from any bodily fluid from that person? The answer is, if you look in the medical literature, there is not one case that that's true. Now, let let me just tell you the, the people who agree with what I just said. Number one, 95 as of yesterday, health institutions have been asked can you show me a study where uh, a, a, a SARS-CoV-2, that's the virus, has been found in any bodily fluid of anybody with COVID? In writing, they say no. Then there's like the Pasteur Institute, the Robert Koch Institute, the CDC, all have said no. All the virologists who write papers saying isolation of SARS-CoV-2 If you ask them in writing, they say no. And here's another thing. Andy and I had the opportunity to present what we're talking about today to a group of lawyers and activists and doctors, and they invited a guy who was introduced to us as a laboratory pathologist and expert in laboratory virology in Wuhan, Chinese CDC for 20 years, and then a Yale pathologist for 20 years. And we asked him, is it possible to see a, a, a isolated a example of SARS-CoV-2 from any person with COVID? And he said, no. And we said, why? He said, because there's not enough to see. And of course, that begs the question <laughs> of, of if there's not enough virus to see in an electron microscope, on what theory is it going to kill us all? But Hang on. So Andy, had, trust me, it's invisible. Yes. That's... Andy had the presence of mind to say, what about if you took 10 people and mixed them together? There's their bronchial fluid. Would there then be enough virus to see? And he said, no. And Andy asked him, what about a hundred people? And he said, no. And he asked him, what about a thousand people? And he said, there's not enough to see. And then we asked him, what about 10,000 people? You mix all their fluid together. Would there be enough to see? And he said no. And then he wouldn't answer anymore. Uh, So the reality is everybody who knows anything about virology agrees that you cannot find this uniform, identical, morphologically identical particle in the bodily fluid of any sick person, not with chickenpox, not measles, not mumps, not the flu, not HIV, not, not COVID. 
So the question is, how did they, why did they write 10,000 papers or so claiming isolation? And that's exactly what Andy just described. They take fluid, they mix it with bovine fetal serum and calf serum, monkey stuff. They spread it on Vero cells usually or other types of cells. They poison it, they starve it, it breaks down, and they call that isolation. Even though we now have two separate experiments that say, because the original experiment that did this by a guy named Enders, he actually did a control. And he did the whole tissue culture with nothing from anybody with measles, right? And he said, in quote, the result was indistinguishable. And when I read that, I thought, wait a minute, you just showed that the, the whole breakdown of the cell, which is what you're calling the virus, happens even if you don't add anything from anybody with measles. Right, so they can find the virus in, in anything when they're just killing cells. They can find the, quote, yes. virus. Right. So this, this is extraordinary, and I, I really appreciate both of you taking the time to restate these things. And I know you've, you've talked about this hundreds of times. Uh, it's just that it, it takes a lot of repetition for a lot of us to get this, even myself. Mike, uh, this was, uh, you know, if, whenever you have to shift paradigm like this, because, you know, we're really challenging germ theory here, it, it just takes a, a while to settle in. It's a process, but it, it can really help you look at all of the other scientific reporting that's going on if you realize that there actually is no virus to speak of. And what you see is that time and time again, the way that they do these studies is through simulations of various types. So they do actually com virtual computer simulations for creating the genome sequence and for uh, showing any potential benefit of masks, because when they study masks in the real world, they're not effective. But they, they've gone as far as to actually make what they call pseudoviruses of variants because they don't actually have a real variant because it doesn't actually exist. So what they do is they take a shell from another virus, empty it out, and put synthetic genes in there that they create in a lab synthesizer. And then they put that in a cell culture and mix it with, you know, antibodies that they say are this COVID antibody or that COVID antibody, and, and that's how they get information about the variants. It's, it's extraordinary, and I think the phrase they use is in silico, which means yeah. it's a computer simulation. And even when, I, I've got to relate to you that I sat down with, uh, with Thermo Fisher sales representatives. We were trying to purchase PCR equipment uh, over a year ago for our food science lab uh, because we were trying to save time versus incubating salmonella samples and so on. Uh, so we were, we were, they had promised, oh, you can do it in 12 hours instead of 72 hours by using PCR. So I said, great, come to our office, meet with us, show us how this works. So they, they came, and I had some questions for them, uh, such as, you know, how do I tell the, the quantity? What's, what's the quantitation capability of this instrument. And they said, oh, there, there is none. It's, it can't give you any quantity. And I said, well, how do I know if food is contaminated to a certain threshold, or is it just the presence of one strain of genetic material? I got to throw this whole lot out because, you know, there are standards, there are standards, European standards, there's FDA standards. 
you know, even salmonella, total plate count, yeast and mold, there's a certain threshold. You go beyond that, it's considered contaminated. Below that, it's considered safe by the FDA. So you got to have quantitation. They can't provide that. And, and then I said, well, how, you know, where am I going to get the samples to run against? And they said, no, you just download them. And I said, what, what do you mean? What, I'm downloading Salmonella now? What are, you, what are you talking about? They said, no, it's just digital libraries, and then you can update them and you just download them, and that's what it's looking for. So you're absolutely right. That's what I realized. It's all a simulation. Yeah, but they tell you, you know, if you go to the original uh, Christian Drosten paper that where the the PCR segments came from, the primers. Now, you have to understand there's two premises of a PCR test. One, that you know you you know that this primer, this sequence, came from only that virus, right? It's unique to that virus. And then the second premise is no right, no other organism has that sequence. Right? You know it came from that one, and no other organism has that. And, and you look at it, and I, I've said this so many times, I have it memorized. They said, this was a challenge for us to develop a robust test because we never had possession of the virus. That's right. I saw that in their documents. Wait a minute. You cannot say this, this thing, right? We're talking about a thing. We're not talking about a feeling or you know, an emotional release or a thought or an idea. We're talking about a thing. You can't say this piece of a thing came from the whole thing unless you have the thing. Well, to and that point. Now that there's 93 human sequences that have the same, you know, sequence, 91, I think the number was microbes. So the whole thing is nonsense. You're, you're exactly right. I, and I've been getting the confirmation from other sources as well. I'm not going to say the name of the doctor, but uh, a doctor that I've interviewed before was playing around with the BLAST software that yeah. you're both familiar with. And they fed in one of these gene sequences of the Delta variant, I think it was, and the BLAST software came back and said, that's homo sapiens. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? So, okay. So they're testing to see if you're human or something. And... But, but the other thing is, I, I think the uh, mainstream science says that the, this virus has, I think, 33,000 genes or something in that range. Perhaps you can correct me on that. But then the so-called PCR test is testing for how many base pairs? You know, what, uh, 50, 100? And just like you said, Dr. Cowan, how can that be unique to that so-called virus? It isn't unique. It is not unique. And you don't, and because... You, because if you don't have possession of the thing first, which they all admit they don't, uh, then you can't say that this piece of it came from that thing. That's not, that's how human beings think. You can't say this paragraph came from this book unless you have the book first. Right. You can't say this piece of a unicorn came from a unicorn unless you've seen a unicorn. It's, I think I think the CDC has seen some unicorns recently. They, they do. Uh, Dr. Kaufman uh, wants you to uh, – first, do you want to respond to any of that? Or if not, I have another question for you. Yeah, no, please go on. Uh, Tom's doing a great job. Absolutely. All right, so there was a news item a, a few months ago where a mother 
had her children wear masks, and then she sent those masks to a lab. And she had the masks analyzed for the pathogens. And the analysis reported all kinds of incredible crazy things, tuberculosis and measles and whatever. I mean, it was like 20 things. And it struck me, but these children don't have those diseases. So what does that mean? I mean, aside from the fact that the masks, perhaps they're collecting something, but the children aren't sick. So if, if, if this particle causes that sickness, why aren't those children sick? Yeah, well, well, that's a great point. And, you know, uh, what it really tells us is that the bacteria don't cause illnesses. Um, and now bacteria, of course, are real things and we can isolate them out of people. So I don't want, uh, there's a big distinction between bacteria and viruses. But what, what we find is that bacteria actually play a similar role uh, throughout nature as in our bodies, the so-called saprophytic function, that they reduce dying uh, biological material into their constituent elements, sort of break them down and digest them. And so what I think you're seeing with the, those experiments, and it was really interesting because they had, I think, like Neisseria meningitidis, right? And you mentioned mycobacterium, the, the, these things that cause, you know, supposedly meningitis and tuberculosis, um, that what when you exhale, that's the way your body's getting rid of toxins. Actually, just the carbon dioxide itself, right, is the acid in your blood. So if you can't get off enough CO2, you have uh, an acidic blood environment, which, as we know, is, is conducive uh, to illness and will cause a lot of problems. But there's also many other things that come out, you know, essentially any volatile compounds that can exit, you know, through the lungs, uh, plus, you know, all kinds of particles and debris from the air that you breathe in, you know, that gets trapped, uh, that comes out in the breath. So there's lots of things your body is trying to get rid of, and those things get trapped in the masks. So there are also various bacteria that are in your lungs that come out with the exhalation, and we also breathe them in from the environment, and they probably communicate uh, between the environment and our body, but they essentially get also trapped um, you know, in the mask, and then they probably proliferate there because there's all of these toxins that are built up in the fibers, and they're uh, just breaking those things down. And, and that's really what we saw. Now, I've also seen through, um, you know, individual people that have come to me, uh, you know, seeking consultation that several people have had illnesses from the masks. So one patient had a, uh, or a client had a pneumonia type illness uh, that happened within several days of having to wear a mask all day at work. And uh, another client um, developed uh, a skin infection, uh, impetigo, that started right around the mouth, which is the typical, but it actually progressed to the exact shape of the mask. And, uh, you know, her, her doctor had just given her stronger and stronger antibiotics, like for several months, until it was obvious it was the shape of the mask. And then she took the mask off. It was better in like three days. Un unbelievable, but I guess not surprising. But you know, speaking speaking of masks, it's as if the medical establishment is trying to coerce people to do the worst possible things for their health: uh, masks, lockdowns, isolation, no sunlight, all these things. I, I want to bring your attention then to Israel and ask for your commentary on this because. Israel is in quite a conundrum. They have about an 80% vaccination rate, mostly with the failing Pfizer vaccine. Uh, so 80% vaccination rate, and yet, and they've had, they've had strict lockdowns, strict 
uh, travel restrictions and so on. Yet they're having record hospitalizations and, you know, quote, infections, however they determine that. And they're confused. They're very confused because they're telling themselves, we did all the right things. We mass vaccinated everybody. We locked everybody down. Everybody wore masks. And why is this, quote, virus still spreading? So from, from your angle, as then challenging the entire premise of the germ theory, how would you explain more simply what Israel is, is going through? Yeah, well, I think you, you really hit the nail on the head. It's uh, all of these policies that, if anything, are creating the illness. Um, we know, you know that lockdown policies and uh, taking away people's economic opportunities uh, and just the employment rate has a known mortality. You know, for every percentage of uh, unemployment that increases, we know the mortality rate increases. So we've seen upticks in, you know, things like suicide and uh, overdoses. Uh, and those all contribute. But we have really now, especially in Israel, where they have you know such a high compliance rate and they, they really coerce the population there into doing this, that they're essentially you know injecting poison in 80% of the people. And so that is resulting in all kinds of illness, but they're not attributing the illness uh, to that. They're trying to, you know, make it look, make everything look like it's caused by a virus. And that's really the main brunt of this whole psychological operation, because that virus is an existential threat and it creates fear. And when people are, are under strong fear reactions, they're much more easily manipulated. And that's that's the reason for keeping it alive. And so all of the narratives like the variant for example, even things like the so-called antibody-dependent enhancement, where it's a combination of the vaccine and the virus that's going to kill you, perpetuates the idea that there's a scary virus. And you even see predictions now. I saw a paper or a, an editorial from uh, one of the prominent newspapers uh, saying that they're expected a new you know, deadly variant this flu season, and they're going to call it COVID-22. I saw that. Uh, right. And uh, that's going to keep going on. Mike, if I could uh, chime in here. Yeah, go ahead. There's an ultimate irony here, which is if you if you look at this this question, I keep asking, how do they, you know, prove the existence of a virus? It's through a cell culture, the cytopathic effect in a cell culture. How do you get the cytopathic effect in a cell culture? As, as Andy, I think, said, it's simple. You starve and poison the cell culture. That's how you create the effect we call a virus, right? And then it breaks down into lots of little particles, and then you say, that particle is the bad guy. Not that one over there, not that one over there, not the rest of the debris, just that one. Now, the irony is, how do you make a virus? You starve and poison cells. How do you make people sick? You starve and poison them. Now, we, we have lots of creative ways of starving people, you know, having them eat, you know, food that's not actual food. That's a kind of starvation, right? And, and not, eat, not being in the sunlight is a kind of starvation. And not having being around loved ones is a kind of starvation, right? And not communicating, not going 
to your job if you happen to like your job, which most people don't. But anyways, um, and, and then we poison them with poisons directly or mass, which create all sorts of stuff. And then we say, why do they get sick? That's how you make viruses. Right, but it, it seems that this this cycle of, of fear and claimed sickness uh, never ends because we, this reminds me of, let's say, a thousand years ago, uh, superstitious, let's say, Pacific Islanders living on an island with a volcano, and you had the high priesthood there, and the high priesthood would say, if you don't please me, the volcano gods will get angry. And that's why you have to do what I say. But today's virologists are exactly the same. They're saying that here's this horrible thing that's going to kill you unless you listen to us and obey us. You can't see this thing. We can't even really see it. Trust us. It's there. Just like the volcano gods are going to get angry. Now it's just like the virus gods are going to get angry. But they can't show us. It's a spell. It is. It's astonishing. And that's why, you know, in my book, I, I said this, as you aptly pointed out, this is not a new phenomenon in human history. They, they wrote about this, you know, in, in the Sleeping Beauty fairy tale, that the, the, the king and queen won't have a child. They, they eventually have a child. The, the bad witch puts a, puts a spell on them, and then the, she pricks her finger. And they all fall down like in lockdown, right? Right, right? Everybody stops working. Nobody can see anybody else. And then the kingdom is engulfed in toxic thorns, right? So anybody who tries to go, they get killed. And it only ends when the young prince says, I'm not afraid. I don't buy this crap. And then, he can, then the, the, the whole spell has no power over him. That's, that's where we're at now. We're under a spell, and until as long as we, we believe the spell, it has the power over us. Well, clearly, and, and all the mainstream doctors are under this spell, but, but let me ask Dr. Kaufman, the what, and this is a legitimate question. It's not a trick question at all. I'm trying to understand this better. Is there a phenomenon of some kind of infectiousness that may be due to something other than uh, virus particles. So can can some people make other people sick if they share something? Fluids, air, I don't know, spit? <laughs> you tell me. Well, you know, Mike, there's a, there's a lot to answer that question. And there definitely is the phenomenon of contagion, right? Because we see this in many areas. Like, for example, we see that when women menstruate, uh, sorry, that when women uh, become close to each other, yeah, you know, in a relationship, a friendship, or things like that, that they begin to um, correlate their menstrual cycles in, in synchrony, right? We know that, uh, you know, laughter, uh, yawning, and things like that are contagious. And so we do communicate with each other, and because the only thing that's been considered as a possible mechanism of this has been, you know, germs, they haven't really looked at what other ways we could communicate. You know, there's a very little research on pheromones. That is certainly one thing, but things like empathy, mirror, mirror neurons, uh, there are many ways. And also 
we can't overlook that we often are exposed to the same environmental circumstances or triggers. Uh, you know, just like if we would eat at a restaurant and uh, anyone who ordered, you know, the chicken ended up with diarrhea that night. It's because we were all exposed to the toxin in that chicken. And I think Tom and I would agree that we see, you know, depending on how you categorize it, three or four causes of illness and there's really nothing outside of that and it's really starvation uh poisoning and trauma and the trauma can be you know of course psychological or physical and uh we can really account for all illness that way now there are ways that you can get sick related to microorganisms because when they do their function of breaking down dead and dying uh, material, sometimes they generate toxic waste, just like we generate toxic waste. And we used to spread a lot more illness to each other when we had living conditions where 150 people shared one bathroom and they were all exposed to each other's uh, you know, feces all the time. So if you let bacteria grow on rotting flesh, for example, like on meat that and that it will produce toxic waste products, right? And this is what food poisoning is, right? Staph toxin or botulism are all these things. And, and sometimes even your own flesh will die, like from, for example, frostbite or a crush injury. And the bacteria, while they're eating your own dead flesh, will create a toxin that can you know, cause uh, a septic shock right? Like gangrene, we've all heard of this. And that's why we simply remove that dead flesh from the body so that those toxins don't get into our blood circulation. And then, then we can survive. But that's very different than the organism, you know, invading and growing in our body and eating our tissue alive. That just doesn't uh, occur in nature. I'm glad you clarified. That's a really important distinction. And because I also want to ask you about the toxic spike protein particle. So as I understand it, uh, you, you agree that there can be toxic, uh, there can be particles that can be toxic or substances or, or poisons, you might call them, that can be toxic to human tissue. Do you think the spike protein that's in the vaccines is, is one of those substances that's toxic to human cells? Well, you know, Mike, can I, can I just yeah. address this for a minute? Yes. Because, because so the, the question is, um, you, you can actually sort this out by doing research, and it turns out there, ha, you know, there has been a fair amount of research on whether one sick person with a so-called viral illness can make another person sick who's not sick. You know, that you could say, I mean, it's a reasonable theory because we all have the experience of some sort of transmission, right? So it turns out I'm in possession of. I think there are last count uh, 12 peer-reviewed studies. They were all done before the 1950s because they stopped doing them. Starting with the 1918 flu, where they took people in the throes of the flu and exposed them by coughing on their in their open mouth and sucking the snot out and, and, and squirting it up their nose. And all these flu studies and cold studies that were very good, you know, quality studies, and literally nobody got sick. And there was also a fascinating one uh, 
with chicken pox, which a, a doctor friend of ours, who I won't mention her name, but she, she unearthed this study back from 29 where they took children with chicken pox lesions and they sucked the fluid out and of the lesions, the vesicles, exposed other children to it, and none of them got sick until they made a laceration and injected this unpurified vesicular fluid right into the tissue. And then they didn't get chicken pox, they just got like a a rash around the area, which could be from a lot of things. Now, but yet, I would say there is the the experience of transmission, but it, it really is only through one whole organism, in other words, one human being to another, like they like women synchronize their menses. Now, what is being transmitted? I mean, I have theories, but nobody studies this, so we don't know. Something is, and, and usually it's a communication strategy or something like that. I mean, it, a lot of times there, there isn't because it's same toxicity, like Andy said, or something like that. But we can't forget there, you know, there is something called resonance in the world. There is communication of various sorts that, you know, all animals do to communicate. Now it's time to eliminate some toxins. Unfortunately, elimination of toxins is what we call chickenpox. It's not a, it's not a disease. It's a maturation step. Well, and I was even, uh, that explanation helps a lot, and thank you for that. But I was even uh, saying, dismissing any claim of a viral replication engine, just just a toxic particle or toxic molecule. Let's say the government has a lab, they synthesize a whole bunch of VX nerve gas, right? And uh, clearly VX nerve gas is a toxic molecule, but then what, what about a, a spike protein payload without any viral engine in it and they're claiming then it's an antigen target in the vaccines but it seems to me like they've just loaded vaccines with a toxic particle kind of like vx nerve gas but slower acting that that's my i guess that's my real question yeah andy can deal with that question okay (laughs) well uh so you know the 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 spike protein is a little bit mysterious because it was never taken from an actual natural organism and purified out. And they just basically constructed it uh, on these computer sequences. So like the in silico sequence, and then they make it in genetically modified organisms, right? Like as a recombinant protein. So you can buy it in a vial from many different laboratories commercially. And it is, has been studied and it does have toxicity. Absolutely. In these genetic vaccine products you know the we're not sure if the spike protein is actually made because you know it's not in the vaccine right the vaccine has the genetic code for the for this protein but because they wanted to avoid doing any studies related to shedding which are required for gene therapies they had this thing classified as a vaccine so they could bypass that so they've never actually studied is the spike protein actually made in someone who gets these injections so i think it's really difficult to tell what is causing all of the vast number of injuries and deaths you know specifically it could be many things because 
the you know hydrogel or the lipid nanoparticle that's the shell containing the genetic material that also is a known independent toxin and then of course there are undisclosed ingredients uh, which could be toxic as well polyethylene glycol is uh, is one of them that i think is disclosed uh, all right next question to dr cowan now uh, just some background for the for the viewers here plate tectonics so here we have two guests who are challenging the germ theory uh, and if you go back in history there was a time when all the prominent scientists of the world thought that the idea that continents move was ludicrous and then one scientist came along and developed the theory of plate tectonics and changed the entire paradigm to show that the continents actually used to kind of fit together massive plates are moving around the planet over over millions of years okay so that then became accepted by mainstream science so my question to you dr cowan is that you know isn't it true that throughout the history of science and there are many other examples that paradigms that were widely accepted such as you know the earth is the center of the universe type of paradigm widely accepted paradigms were, were overthrown through a scientific revolt and that would you say that that's the kind of action that maybe we need we need to see now? Yes, although I would say that I don't know basically anything about plate tectonics. So uh, <laughs> that's okay. I, I don't know whether that's. I, I have no comment. About <laughs> okay, fair enough. It's just an example. Yeah. Yeah. So it's probably a great example, but I just don't know anything about it. So I'm going to pass on that. I mean, you know, this has been. Um, building up for you know hundreds of years really this and, and you know i would say in fairness if if you want to go down that road there is something that seems to be transmissible between people right there's communication strategies between people now if you go back even thousands of years there were many explanations for what you know you know, energy waveforms, all kinds of things as explanations for how living organisms communicate with each other. And, you know, we know that plants and trees communicate with each other through chemicals in their roots and through, you know, something called biological resonance, which is being more and more demonstrated actually in very clear laboratory studies. Unfortunately, it's like we put all our eggs in this one basket that it must be a microbe. And it turns out, you know, that if you just do science and say, you know, science means you isolate the thing you're looking for to see if that's the problem, right? That's how we think. Uh, and if you do that, you find out that's not the problem. And it's not that, as, as Andy said, you know, you can get bacteria living in a tissue and it can actually choke the tissue off. It can actually create toxins which cause you trouble. But just because a bacteria or a, or a so-called virus is present is not the same as saying that it's the cause of the trouble. That's just, you know, a logical fallacy. Mm -hmm. Got it. Right. And, but I'm sorry, go ahead, Dr. Kaufman. Well, I'm just going to add that really what's happened here is that the whole enterprise of science and medicine has really been kind of infiltrated and manipulated towards certain ends. And the main 
overarching philosophy has been materialism. And when experiments go against that, they're essentially ignored. And in medicine, you know, we have since the Flexner report and the changing over of medical education, we have only this allopathic system of, you know, so-called cut, burn, poison that is operating. And germ theory is the major uh, philosophy behind that. And so all of the research now, it, you know, it used to be that the military just provided all of this funding for scientists and gave these unrestricted grants because they knew that if they let people be creative and use their ingenuity, they would come up with valuable technologies and research. But those days have been uh, long gone. And now all the research practically is funded by the government and some by private industry with financial interests, but all of the government um, research around disease is focused on germ theory. And so you can't get funding to study any other mechanisms like bioresonance or uh, EMF uh, field theory or anything like this because it's predetermined. And you also have the compartmentalization and the example we brought up before, um, you know, about the contagion, there actually is academic study of this in the area of sociology, but the sociologists are, have limited skills and they don't understand biology or biophysics. And so they can't look at, they don't have the intellectual um, uh, capacity to look at what could be the causal mechanism. So they just describe it sociologically, and then it, it, it turns out to be pretty meaningless because it's just an observation. And because of that compartmentalization, that's why all scientists don't know that these little air, you know, virologists over here at the edge of, of uh, this plank are about to walk over the edge, and nobody realizes it because they don't even understand exactly what experiments they're doing. They don't talk to each other, and they're not cross-trained. Well, it seems like... Uh as this draconian science is progressing, it's narrowing the allowable window of debate. It's even cannibalizing itself to the point where with this outbreak, then only vaccines are allowed to be represented as a treatment, not even other prescription drugs that happen to have gone off patent, you know, such as hydroxychloroquine. So you, you see big pharma cannibalizing itself and saying, no, the only thing allowed are, are vaccines. In fact, there was a story, I think, today that uh, YouTube is banning people, uh, videos, people who offer prayer as a treatment for COVID instead of vaccines. So you're no longer allowed to pray for health, <laughs> which tells you a lot about where this is where this is going in terms of big tech, doesn't it? You know, Michael, let me, if I could uh, even give you another example of what you were talking about before. And so th this story, you know, needs to be corroborated. But so I, you know, I spent a lot of this last year and a half or so looking for old studies and studies that really looked at this, you know, a microorganism causation of disease. And, you know, Andy's right, in the, in the old days, now we're talking 1890, 1900, the U.S. Army was very worried about malaria, right? Because it was a big problem in, in the Panama and place like that. So they went there and they said, yeah, there's not much malaria. And then they started, uh, you know, using like arsenic and, and essentially weed killers, herbicides. And then they saw the increase in malaria. 
then they had a theory that, well, it's passed through this, you know, the bite of a mosquito and it, it, you know, essentially takes this bacteria and transmits it from one to another. So they took some of the uh, some of the soldiers with malaria and they put their arm in a thing, you know, and then they put a bunch of mosquitoes in there. And what they said in the papers was the mosquitoes wouldn't bite somebody with malaria. It's like the mosquitoes, you know, because they read our books, they said, no, there's something wrong with this guy. He's some poison in there. I'm not biting him. In which case, they couldn't possibly have transmitted it. And so they ended up thinking this is just, you know, essentially uh, herbicide toxicity. That's why we're getting this. Uh, now, I'm not, I'm not saying that's 100% true, because. Uh, but what I'm saying is they had the, the license to look at, you know, what really was, ha let's look at this and see. And there's no way you could do a study like that now. Have either of you, and we're almost out of time, I want to be respectful of your time, but have either of you looked into the, the theories of Rupert Sheldrake and morphic resonance? Because, Absolutely, yeah. Okay, because I, I found some incredible information. I actually did, did a talk about this, about the formation of glycomolecules, sugars, and how, how they would freeze at certain temperatures. And then once one, one substance, a liquid sugar, once it would start to freeze at, at a certain temperature at one lab, it would immediately start to do so in other labs thousands of miles away, even around the world, as if they were sharing information about the morphological structure. Right. What are your thoughts on, on morphic resonance? I mean, my thought is, is it's, it it's explains a lot. That doesn't mean it's true. But I don't see why we don't want to live in a culture and in a, in a, if you want to call it a civilization, that says, okay, let's look at this. Let's right. try to figure out whether it's true or not or, or how it works. Yeah, why can't we ask questions? Yeah, why can't we ask questions? I, I mean, I don't know, you know. I'm just some guy, and, and but I, I don't want to be told that question isn't allowed. Right. That just doesn't make any sense to me at all. Because you know, the, like like I used to learn in medical school, they used to say, "Well, we believe that only material substance exists." So I used to say, "Do you love your wife?" He says, "Yes." Well, where in where in you is this thing called love? You see, because nobody really believes that, right? We don't, nobody believes that that's all there is to a human being or a life. Yet we pretend, it's this spell again, we pretend that that must be true. And we don't look at it and we don't say, well, where does this phenomena of love come from? Well, it's even, and, and, and Dr. Kaufman, I'll ask you to chime in, but it's even more, even it gets to the, the debate about consciousness and the soul and essentially what the materialists are arguing is that inside your skull is another tiny little person controlling you and inside that tiny little person is another tiny little person inside their skull and it's this this uh, self-reinforced materialism garbage that makes no sense no sense dr kaufman 
Yeah, well, you know, there's so much uh, we really don't know uh, about these things, and and especially if you don't take for granted what what you're told. Like, for example, with with genetics, you know, the whole theory of genetics says that every protein in your body is coded for by a gene, and, and perhaps there might even be more than one gene uh, required for a single protein. Uh, yet we have, you know, over a hundred thousand proteins that are designated as human proteins, but only about twenty to twenty-five thousand genes. So, in other words, we don't code all the information. And look at the complexity of how our bodies work, with you know billions of chemical reactions going on every second or every microsecond. So. Where is all the information that is um, coding everything and running all of that complexity coming from? We know that that our brains don't have quite that capacity, so there has to be some informational field or other source of information, you know, outside of, of our physical bodies that allows the complexity of our functioning and our physiology to occur. And I, that's something that really fascinates me. And I would like to be able to explore that scientifically and see I'm, where it leads. I'm so glad you brought that up. You've hit on a really important point. Actually, I think this underlies this whole discussion where th this assumption by mainstream science that genes encode the entire whole being of a human being is utterly fraudulent. The, the human genome project itself was a complete failure. They sequenced something, but none of that described even the position of a finger on a hand, right? Much less behavior or physiology or chemical functions inside your liver. None of that is found in, in the genetic code. You know, Dr. Cowell, go ahead. I, or, or why you would ask how does this work? <laughs> right, right. Where's the gene for, for the question of how does a gene work? I mean, I'd love to see it, you know, because I don't, I don't think it exists. And we are an information field. And you, you know, it's the, the shocking thing. And I just did an interview with a guy yesterday from Italy who, who went a long way to describe how information gets downloaded into our water which is basically the world's most sophisticated you know fractal geometric uh, encoding system and uh, creates you know an outcome sort of like you know the water is like the radio and then there's information fields coming through the light and the earth and the sun and through, through thoughts and feelings and who knows what that gets downloaded by the water and creates life. And we're looking for like this three-year-old friend of mine, we were riding in the car and my voice came on in an interview and he said, Tom, how did you get into the radio? Uh, and that's what we're looking for. It's nonsense. It I'm not in the radio. Well, we've, we've opened up the doors for, I think, a future interview. I hope you'll join me again at some point. To, let's, let, let's talk about genetics. Let's talk about morphology or even how about uh, the embryonic development? What information drives that process? Right. Because I think we're getting to the real core here of that much of what we're told is a, is a complete fraud or at best it's a very tiny fraction of the big picture. Yeah. Uh, I just want to thank you. Any final thoughts, either one, for, for today's discussion? I just want to thank you, Mike, for, for 
I am just so impressed that I'm not brown nosing here. I'm just saying what I think, which is I am very impressed with we, we all couldn't believe this, right? We just couldn't. And then we looked and we looked and there's something was going in our minds saying, just stay with logic, stay with your trust, your common sense and your scientific integrity. And then you come to the right place. Well, absolutely. Thank you for your persistence. And, and Dr. Kaufman, any, any final thoughts? Yeah, well, also, you know, it, it takes, uh, you know, it's really difficult to um, be open to changing your mind about things and definitely, you know, especially to admit when you're wrong. And we've all kind of gone through that on this issue. And, you know, it's really important that we're going to also learn new things in the future that we're going to realize we were wrong about other things. <laughs> so, um, you know, in the, in the spirit of that, the reason why the this is so, so important is because every single aspect of the tyranny and the world uh, changing events going on right now is all predicated on this one simple fact that there exists a dangerous pathological virus. And once you can understand that it actually doesn't even exist, let alone cause a new illness, then you can be free to easily see through all of the fraudulent and misleading research rhetoric and tyrannical policies so that you can make a decision, uh, you know, how you can at really protect your family and what is really the danger here, which is losing freedom to a dictatorship and not uh, being risky and getting sick with an imaginary virus. Yeah, well, well said. I'm just, I'm glad that this isn't the 18th century or the CDC would say the only allowable treatments are mercury vapors and bloodletting. <laughs> well, I don't know. Pfizer's pretty close. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're getting to that. Maybe that's next. We're going to go back uh, in time. But thank you both. I want to give out your websites: uh, AndrewKaufmanMD.com. We'll put it on screen for you, and also DrTomCowan.com. And thank you both for joining me today, and thank you for your explanations. It's it's been an honor learning so much from you. I hope we'll do it again. And, Thanks, uh, Mike. Thank you both. This has been uh, Brighton Conversations, folks. Share this video everywhere. You have permission to repost it, but also link back to Brighton.com so we can have more conversations that are not allowed on YouTube. You can't even pray on YouTube anymore. <laughs> okay, thanks for watching. Take care. All right, that's, that's the video, folks. Survival Nutrition is our new audio book. Let's do the adverts. Well, thanks for coming in. It, as I said, it was it's challenging material, uh, but it's worth listening to, and it's worth researching. Uh, I appreciate you coming in. I don't always have an audience for these things, but uh, three people who stay the distance is is pretty good going for my for my shows. So I appreciate you being here. And I, I do shows every day, but I don't do them on a regular time. So if you want to know when the shows are happening, you you have to subscribe, really, otherwise you'll miss them. Uh, so if you want to do that, you can do that. If not, I'll see you next time. Next time we bump into each other. Well, I'm going to I'm going to close this up because we need we've gone over an hour now. So I try and keep the shows to twenty minutes or half an hour, unless I find something that's really worth playing. Thanks for coming in, guys. See you later.